I feel like I'm just naturally low energy, and then I come on the show and I have to be like really excited. You start low energy at the beginning of that W, but by the end of the W, you're you're up to speed. Welcome to episode <laughs> <It's all right. laughs> 325. And then I talk like this the rest of the episode. <laughs> Welcome to episode 325 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Black. Welcome back for another episode. We got a good one today, Brian. Yeah. Well, first of all, how is uh, your long weekend? Glorious and uneventful. Oh, and Glorious perfect. because it was uneventful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So perfect for you. Yes. Nice. How about you, sir? Yeah. I mean, it's been just lovely. We had people over for Friendsgiving. We have been just exploring New York. It's finally getting cold, so we're bundled up and just walking around the city. It's lovely. But here we are on a cold Saturday afternoon recording. Uh, Yeah, we've got a good episode. And uh, before we jump in, we want to thank our latest supporters on our Patreon. Yeah. Shout out to Amy Geddes and Amy G., I don't know if this is the same person. Amy, if you're listening, you might have subscribed twice. With two different emails. If not, we got two Amy G's that subscribed to our Patreon. It, like, back to back. W- literally within the same hour or maybe even sooner than that. Uh, also, shout out to TT underscore 55. That's your Patreon username. Thanks for the support. And Breno Baldrati. So thank you all for, for supporting the show. If you haven't heard, we're a listener-supported podcast. If you go to patreon.com slash design details you can subscribe for just a buck a month that gets you access to a private rss feed that has all of our content sponsor free as well as bonus content we have one bonus land episode out right now and more to come soon so head over to patreon.com slash design details for more information we also have support this episode from sisu sisu is looking for a thoughtful and data savvy designer to help build the next generation of analytics software you can find out more at sisu.com AI. That's S-I-S-U dot AI. We also have support from Flywheel. Flywheel is a delightfully designed managed WordPress hosting platform thoughtfully built for busy creatives. Streamline your workflow with their slick platform and sweet set of workflow tools perfectly made for designers. Get started right now at getflywheel.com slash design details. So thank you, Flywheel and Sisu. Thank you. All right, we've got uh, some follow-up. Marshall, kick us off. Yeah, so last episode, we talked about the physical world and how it influences design and, and kind of got on, on some tangents around that. But one of the things I failed to mention that I should have thought of at the time and only realized listening back was that in talking about video games and talking about haptics, Video games have had haptics forever. We've had uh, (laughs) rumble packs for a long, long time. And that's an integral part of interacting with the video game nowadays. If there's an explosion on screen, guess what? There's a rumble in your hands. Uh, Something I should have mentioned. So another thing that I I think we maybe should have mentioned as an example of, of skeuomorphism is bottom sheets. The idea of a, a surface sliding up from the bottom of the screen that is above the current surface and potentially even pushes that current surface back a level. And, and it is the sheet design that is an affordance for dragability or swipeability, right? What would those affordances be, Brian? The affordance would be the the rounded corners, the drop mm-hmm. shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, usually there's like, uh, actually the handle, the handle could be that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, additional. Yep. 
the entry but animation. specifically, like, it creates this Z index, and especially the motion of it. Yeah, the presentation. Like, it slides up, therefore it can be slided, mm-hmm. <laughs> slid, mm-hmm. swiped slid. back down. <laughs> yes. yes. Dragged. Drug. Dragged. Drugged? <laughs> Drugged back down, dragged? I mean, I guess. How, how do words work? Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, so that's that's all the follow-up I had uh, from last episode. Things I was thinking about listening back to it. Cool. We also got a couple tweets from uh, over the last week. The first one is actually from back in episode 323, where we talked about designing for social proof. Joshua Taylor tweeted at us, been thinking a lot about the social proof we show in Parrot, which is a podcast side project or new company product that Josh is working on. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes, but it's with Parrot on Twitter. Josh says, been thinking a lot about the social proof we show in Parrot. So naturally, this episode from Design Details made me save a ton of highlights. Kind of meta, but I highly recommend if you're designing social products. So thanks for the shout, Josh, and hope that episode was helpful. We also got a tweet from Sahil Shatravedi, who said, slow mode and pro mode. Love it. Uh, At all of us stealing this winky face. You know what's interesting? Another thing I should have uh, said is I misspoke. I don't know why I said mode, but usually I call it slow flow and pro flow. Mode, oh. I guess, works the same, but yeah. It's mode a, works well, yeah. A slow flow, yeah, like thinking in a, if I were going slow, this is the mode I would be in versus pro, but really I, I should have said slow flow versus pro flow. So there's a, a series of steps that you can take that is slower than the faster pro version. But either way, I'm glad, I'm glad you're stealing it. Take it. Feel free. Could you be in a pro mode with a slow flow on the down low? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this has been Freestyling with Marshall and Brian. Please never again. We are done with follow-up. Let's move along. All right. We've got some listener questions this week. Our first, uh, actually, all these listener questions came through our Patreon. So yeah. shout out to question askers. First one comes from Will Newton. Will says, I've been a product designer at a high growth company for three and a half years. During this time, I've observed the scope and expectations of my role shift from being an end-to-end generalist, including pairing with engineers to do front-end, to being more specialized and focused on pixel-perfect mock-ups and presentations slash visual polish. Can you talk about the ways in which the role of a product designer can change at a rapidly growing company and some strategies for navigating those changes? Great question. Great question. Probably infinite answers or probably end up talking high level right like it depends on the company it depends on what we mean by rapidly growing as well as like you know navigating those changes might be specific to your personality or your comfort zone uh Mm -hmm. things like that right so maybe yeah just at a high level like navigating a growing company or or changing expectations of the role you have as a company grows I personally don't have a whole lot of experience with this. Most of, uh, well, all of the companies that I've I've worked at have been relatively mature, and I was very specialized from the very beginning. Uh, I think you probably have a little bit more to say about this than I do, Brian. But from my knowledge, this makes a lot of sense, right? We've talked about this on the show before. When you're a small company, when you're a startup, you have less money and you have fewer people. So those fewer people need to cover more areas, mostly because the stuff you need to do as a small company is not necessarily all that much less than the stuff you need to do as a big company. There's some extra added things at a big company level with like lawyers and stuff like that that you know might not be as important when you're smaller, but it's basically the same subset of things and a lot fewer people to do it. So as the company grows, 
you gain, you, you start hiring more people. The more people there are to do things, the fewer things each individual person has to do. By the time you become a large company, every person is specialized because there's enough people to handle the load for any given discipline. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it, it seems like you could go that way where you end up becoming more specialized uh, as an IC. And I think there's probably another path where as the company grows, opportunities present themselves to become even more of a generalist, probably a generalist outside of just the design craft, but like more around leadership or hiring or strategy or uh, organizational design. Like how do we structure the teams as things are growing to make sure that we have adequate coverage on different products, to make sure that we have enough room to explore new ideas while also making sure that the things we are building are high quality so I can imagine, yeah, maybe some people would go down that specialist route. Sounds like this is what Will's doing, like getting really deep into the quality and the the output of any given product design. But you could probably also look at this as an opportunity for growing into IC leadership, which might be like a strategy. I can imagine you influence the hiring criteria or the hiring process. Uh, I could imagine situations where you are, are acting more as like a mentor to the ICs around you and maybe you're like really good at critique. So that feels like generalist skills that might go a little bit broader than like pixel craft, right? Mm -hmm. The nice thing about being a generalist and eventually having to focus on one thing or another or or kind of redefine what your role is, is that you get the opportunity to choose among the things that you're already doing, which of those excites you the most, right? Being a generalist lets you dip your toe in a lot of different waters, but some of those waters are going to be chillier than others. So once you figure out which ones are good, stick with the stick with the good ones. Stick with that warm water. <laughs> yeah. I, again, this like comes back to the how what your comfort zone is and like what your boundaries are of what you're even interested in doing. But I, I don't know. I, I'm actually, I suppose... I suppose I'm a little surprised that you would, or it seems less common to me that if you're at a high growth startup that you would go from the generalist role to doing like pixel perfect mocks. Um, I can see how that's a path, but I guess I could imagine like a more common path being that of like being pushed into management. So in many ways, it sounds like maybe you've fought to retain that role as like a high level, high quality, solid output IC yeah. instead of, maybe the more common result of just being forced into hiring people and ending up spending more time doing people stuff than pixel stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think the second part of this question, maybe Marshall, we could probably both be useful here is like, what are strategies for navigating changes as companies are growing? I mean, I was trying to get at that a little bit by my warm water analogy. That you could stick with what's comfortable? Or not necessarily even what's comfortable. It's about value, right? It's about the value that you can bring to the company with your one person amount of work that you can provide, right? And if if that is by spreading yourself across a bunch of different disciplines and maintaining that type of strategy for your career, then then that's one thing. But if you can realize that like, hey, I am most useful when I provide these services and, and utilize this specific skill set far more than another person could be doing these other things that I'm not as good at. Mm -hmm. Let those other people who are really good at that thing I'm okay at do that thing. And I'll just do the things that I'm really good at because everybody needs to carry a heavy load and I should be carrying a load that I'm 
best equipped to carry. Right. And it seems like, you know, one angle of that is you could just spend your time investing in cross-functional relationships that augment all of the things that you're bad at or, or all the other functions that are needed to ship a product, right? Like you could, instead of being worried about losing the sort of high touch work on front end programming, you just become a really great collaborator with a great front end engineer. Mm-hmm. And that ends up being your strategy for navigating this this transition as the company grows is you end up becoming the person that people go to for advice. You become the person that has strong opinions on on the way things could be implemented or the way they should work or, or be interactive. And engineers and PMs and uh, content strategists and researchers, they seek you out as an expert in in the pixel part, but you're really good at talking and collaborating, which is probably important anywhere. Well, it is important anywhere, but certainly as you're growing and transitioning out of being a generalist, you need to make sure that you're not having like a identity crisis as you have to give up these roles to other people, right? It's like, don't panic that you're not doing the engineering anymore day to day. It's great. Now I have this huge amount of work that I can hand off to somebody who's probably going to care about it more or be better at it or go deeper to make sure it's really polished than I would normally have time to do. Exactly. I guess ultimately my my advice for any any sort of navigation when it comes to career is, you know, follow your heart. Do the thing that you want to do. Like do the thing that you are going to be excited about getting up every morning and going into the office cuz if you hate your job, it's going to suck getting up every morning, and that's that's no fun. And and if you're in a position to make a choice about that or, or choose between uh, different opportunities, like that's huge. Take it. Yeah, it seems like any high-growth company presents itself naturally with just a lot of opportunities that you could choose to pursue or not. And so if you're in touch with what your needs are day-to-day, what you find fun, what you want to learn more about, if you're in tune with that, then maybe those opportunities become a lot easier to make make the decision on whether you you follow them or not. So, you know, I could imagine lots of opportunities for taking on scope, working on new products, maybe going down the management route, doing a lot more hiring or process documentation. Like those kinds of things certainly will will mature as the company grows and you could play a part in those. But if you're in tune with what you enjoy and are fulfilled by, then those decisions become easier. So maybe, I don't know, every month you like kind of take stock on where am I going? What do I want to be doing uh, here next year? Are there new product opportunities that we're missing? Like, so just by the nature of high growth, it means that the, the more senior people who have been there longer just have way more cultural context than any new employee could have. And so that's also a really cool opportunity to be that person who understands where the company's been, what they've tried in the past. You can be like this archive or librarian of past ideas and like help guide people who are picking up old ideas that you never had time to ship in the past. Well, maybe you do have time now and it's a great opportunity for another designer to work on it and you can be sort of that that archivist or librarian. Mm -hmm. I, I remember at Facebook when I joined and I was working on payments, Facebook had tried a million things around payments before I joined but the company wasn't at the right stage or they didn't have the right resources. And so luckily there were people who had stuck around for a few years that had worked on it in the past and I could go and pick their brains and look at all their old design files and see what things had been tried in the past. And so, yeah, you could also be that person. So 
fuck. I don't know. I feel like I don't have enough experience to be talking here. Yeah, neither of us do, but... <laughs> yeah, hopefully that was helpful, Will. I don't know. This is a hard question because I feel like I'm still fairly new and also I've only worked at like a small startup, a gigantic company, and now I'm at a midsize. So I don't think I've been through this like high growth phase of a, a startup before. So I'm, a lot of it's speculation, but also just reflecting a little bit about how I'm thinking about specifically GitHub right now. Like GitHub's growing fairly quickly, and I'm jumping in at such a weird point in its history. I'm trying to imagine like all the people that I look to within the company for advice who have been there for, for a few years, their understanding of the company is so invaluable and it's been great to have them. So I don't know, you could be that person. Cool. Well, thank you for your question, Will. Hopefully we answered that somewhat satisfactorily. <laughs> Our next question comes from, actually, it's a, it's a double question, a little piggyback action going on here. So originally this question comes from Michael Knepreth, but Kevin Bennett also piggybacked on it. So Michael asks... At large companies, are designers and subject matter experts typically different people? Does it depend on the project? How does one effectively work with a subject matter expert and glean the info needed to create a good design for a domain that one wasn't previously familiar with? Good question. And, yeah. and on top of that, uh, Kevin asks, you could get into how designers and design leads have to be more aware and sympathetic to the business needs when in a larger organization. And do people stop that from affecting their creativity? Cool. So yeah, on the first one, just talking about subject matter experts, the example that came to mind for me was, well, so my loose answer is, yes, they're typically different people. But the longer you spend working in any given field, like you hopefully become the subject matter expert. So the example that came to mind for me was, as I mentioned, I joined Facebook and I worked on payments. And I don't know anything about payments or fintech or how that whole world works. Like I remember when I first joined, I had to take like anti-money laundering training. I'm like, what the fuck? I don't even know how money laundering works. And I'm having to <laughs> yeah. take all this training for it. Mm -hmm. And what I found was we had very good specialists on our team across all disciplines. So we had a lawyer on our team. We had great researchers who had payments backgrounds, PMs who were from PayPal and other fintech companies. And so my role was to synthesize what they knew into the correct interface. And that meant that we had product reviews with lawyers in the room and they would tell us like what legally is required to be on the screen, what they recommend to protect Facebook. And then on the design side, we could push back and be like, well, you know, all this disclaimer text kind of sucks. Is there a way we can make this one sentence instead of three? So like we had that sort of collaborative workflow together, but over time, I was there for a year and nine months, so not that long. But after a year and nine months, like you built up this library in your head of all the things related to this specific payments flow. Like I knew, I knew how credit card forms needed to disclose information, and then uh, from Facebook's end, how we needed to disclose privacy and terms of service links, what you could disclose in terms of like profile photos and names and sensitive information attached to payments, like all this stuff you build up a library for. And then before you know it, you're kind of a subject matter expert. And I think actually fintech's a really interesting example because designers in fintech tend to kind of stay in that lane or it's a very easy lane to stay in because it's such a complex world where you have to know so much before you're ever effective as a designer. And so once you become a subject matter expert in finance, then you can 
just go deeper and deeper and become that like one in a hundred expert in the industry. Uh, you used the term fintech a couple of times. Is that financial technology? Yeah, financial technology. Okay. I was like, is that a company name? No, fin- yeah. So that'd be like the squares and the stripes and the gotcha. PayPal's of the world, right? Okay. Uh, yeah, and and I, I would have a similar answer specifically on the team that I work on on uh, at gaming at YouTube. Basically, everybody on the team is passionate about gaming. We're we're all gamers for the most part, especially on product. But we have a researcher who has a, a very deep history in gaming and has worked in the industry for a long time and knows a lot about the demo and a lot about the industry and everything. So a lot of the things I've learned are from my own past and experience playing games as a gamer, but a, a lot of it has been gleaned from reading her research reports and, and talking to her and, and trying to figure out where the gaps in my knowledge are. Yeah. I mean, I, this is why cross-functional roles exist, right? Like one person can't know all of these things. So when you ask, how does one effectively work with the subject matter experts? Like in the design process, right? You you ask them questions, They uh, you push them, they push you. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I could just keep leaning on this legal example because I thought that was a pretty unique experience to be working with a legal team so closely yeah but we pushed each other right like we would be in design crits together and the legal people would want something very specific and we would push back and they would push back and we went through this process of getting the right signifiers of privacy and trust and the right Mm -hmm. disclaimer copy for terms of service like we pushed each other to get to that point and there's no way that I could ever memorize all the laws and regulations. And there's no way that they could reasonably understand all the, the flows and, and use cases that we're designing for and, mm-hmm. you know, all the pixel problems or UX problems or interaction problems. Yeah. So we just sit down and hash it out and we end up with something that hopefully is good. It's sometimes painful in that specific example, but yeah, working with lawyers is always like <laughs> they're, they're covering asses and we're trying to yeah. make it be as, as few words and as few clicks as possible, which is uh, mutually exclusive. You got to find a, a common ground there. It's a really hard one, but yeah, I, I think generally having a subject matter expert on hand is super useful, but the more knowledgeable a subject matter expert is at that subject matter, the more likely they should be to spread that knowledge within their team and bring everybody's knowledge level up, right? Right. Okay, so that maybe moves us into Kevin's sub-question, which is how do designers and design leads become more aware and sympathetic to business needs when they're in a larger organization? And then does that awareness of business needs affect their creativity? Yeah, business needs is tough, right? Like It's tough, but it's the point. Like I think it's a constraint. Like Business needs are a constraint. You can't just build anything because yep. then your business doesn't have a I mean, you can. Clear... You'll just fail probably, right? Yeah, you're going to fail or people will over time become confused about what your company stands for or what the product is meant to be used for. And so having the business needs drive the kinds of products or experiences that you end up building is seems like a useful constraint. I feel like maybe what is being hinted at here is when the quote unquote business requirements are people in the room saying we don't have time for polish or making this feel really good as an experience or uh, investing more time into visuals or illustration or things like that. And I think that's where 
I don't know, we've talked in the past about navigating like these sorts of arguments around how do you prove that this is valuable to the business, right? Like if an illustration can make a flow more clear or more memorable or increase conversion rates in some way because it it illustrates the metaphor in a really compelling way, then that is solving business needs. But if you position it as we want an illustration because it looks pretty, then I think the quote unquote business needs of like how much are we paying employees to build this feature that's probably going to beat you. So it's mm-hmm. like, how can you position the work? And, and if you find that you can't position things that you think are really creative and fun, if you can't position them in a way that's good for the business or can justify the cost that it takes to build and implement it, then maybe it's not the right thing to be doing. Mm-hmm. Easier said than done, because like we all want to just build cool shit, but <laughs> I mean, you, gotta, you have to be realistic. Yeah, yeah. And that this is the thing I'm constantly fighting with is like, I just want to build cool shit that people will like. And, you know, sometimes that is perfectly in line with business needs. Other times it is not. But to the point of the question, he's kind of asking, do business needs affect people's creativity? And I'd say yes. But like you said, it's a constraint and constraints breed creativity. So, you know, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing if you see it as a blocker or as a, an impediment to overcome uh, as a negative thing, then it's going to be a lot more painful than is if you just see it as another one of the constraints that you have to deal with as part of your design. Yeah, I agree. It can influence your creativity one way or the other, but also... I don't know, I'm I'm realizing, you know, maybe we are just in a luxurious position of working at like a larger, more established company. I could imagine that at a startup, actually, it's probably even more important at a startup, right? Like if you aren't sustainable or profitable, then fuck yeah, you need to justify what you're building so that you're going to be able to pay yourself. You're so lean. Everything you do has to be incredibly effective to a, a multitude of the amount of effort you put into. Yes, yeah. Yeah. But the way that it could hamper creativity... I don't know how to think about this example, so let's talk it through. But what an example that comes to mind is Facebook Paper. Do you remember Facebook Paper? Oh, do I? Okay. So for people who never got to use this, Facebook Paper was a app created at Facebook in 2014 and 2015, and then it died in 2016, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was basically a reimagining of the way that you could interact with and navigate and use Facebook. So it was a side product but it was sort of an augmentation of the existing content pages newsfeed profiles things like that it was a mike mattis joint right it was a mike mattis yes and i mean talk about creativity it was like some really incredible navigation patterns incredible my mind. visuals and animations and interactions like yeah it was a really cool product but ultimately was shut down so i struggle with how to think about that because Maybe it bred some cool ideas that made it way back into Facebook, but I don't know if I can't think of anything off the top of my head that would indicate that. So instead, it felt like an exercise in creativity that was confused about how Facebook makes money, which is like this infinitely scrollable feed of things that you can dynamically inject ads into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a great uh, example. This is part because I'm sure anyone who worked on this is like screaming. They probably, well, they certainly know so much more. So this is just our outside, you know, yeah. guessing as best we can. I have zero inside knowledge. The, the only knowledge I have of Facebook paper is my my love for it when it came out and and my sadness when I heard that I was one of the few people who liked it and used it. Yeah. 
And I think it's because my relationship with Facebook is very different from the average person's relationship with Facebook. I, I don't necessarily want the big long feed. I wanted to be a little bit more specific about how I used it, which paper let me do. And that was not, I guess, in line with how Facebook should be used um, to be most effective for the average person. I don't know. My outside understanding is, is similar to what you said, right? Like, it was an exercise in creativity, one that was incredibly successful from a creative standpoint. Like, it, it did so many cool new things. It introduced so many cool new patterns and interactions and ways of thinking about uh, information architecture and and app structure and navigation within that app structure and I, th I think some of that stuff has has survived like like we were talking about earlier like it, it had a heavy use of sheets and and kind of surfaces on top of other surfaces right yeah and I feel like that's a, a pretty common pattern that we see today outside of that but ultimately yeah it's 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 dead now and one of the things that's really interesting about our industry is you know you can go back and you can look at old magazines that were published. You can look at old newspapers. You can look at old video games. You can play old video games on old hardware, but, but paper's gone. Unless you have it installed on a phone that you haven't updated or whatever, like, no, it's it doesn't, gone. It doesn't even work then because I think it used special all APIs. APIs yeah. yeah, so like, it doesn't exist anymore. So all that effort is just gone. Which, from a business standpoint, I'm sure they paid a lot of people a lot of money during that time to develop it, and it was all for naught, which is sad. Yeah. We need to get somebody who worked on this on the, the show to talk about Ugh. what happened. I would love to pick brains. Yeah, I, we should pick brains. Just from a UI standpoint alone. For people who are interested, this is just a little shameless self-plug, but I do have a bunch of recorded videos of how paper worked and captured a bunch of the interactions. This was back in 2016. I was just thinking, like, do I have an old phone that might still have it on there? Yeah, I, I don't have it, but I have all these videos, so they're on my website. There's one of the design details blog posts, but God, such cool stuff. Link in the show notes. Link in the show notes. So anyways, uh, <laughs> side side tangent on on paper, but yeah, I think that's where business requirements can be a positive or negative constraint. In this case, I think it was probably negative, but certainly... For creativity, but they, they made the right decision, which was don't put effort into a, a losing battle. Right. Which is sad every time. I've worked on many things that are dead now. Yeah, we need an archive.org for apps. Yeah. Because there's a lot of cool things that no longer exist, and once they're off the app store, they are gone forever, except for on those people's computers. So... Mm -hmm. But even then, like the APIs, if the, if, if, if the server calls don't work, then it's truly dead. Truly dead. All right. Uh, hopefully this was a satisfying <laughs> answer in some way. <laughs> truly dead. All right. Moving on. <laughs> moving on. Killing oh, things man. on the internet is sad. Okay. Let's talk about happy things, like cool yeah. things. Let's get into cool things. I'll go first. So... No, you've gone first the last several weeks. Let me go first, Brian. How dare you? All right. Go first. <laughs> so... Real quick follow-up. Last week, I mentioned I was reading Expeditionary Force Columbus Day. That was the first book in an eight-book series currently. Might, might be longer. I'm not sure if eight is the end, but I'm currently halfway through book four, and it's still good. Book three was all right, but it's, it's a very good series. I would recommend it even more now, having, having read more of it. So, But my cool thing this week is something that's probably not too controversial. I think everybody that I'm going to be saying this to, if they wanted to watch it, is already watching it. But 
The Mandalorian on Disney Plus is a good show that I'm enjoying. And the reason I, I was going to mention a different show on Disney Plus, maybe I'll save that for a future episode. But the only reason that I bring this up is because I think Brian and I have differing views on the Mando. So, uh, <laughs> Brian. Mando v. Movies? Mando v. Movies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Link in the show notes. All right. So, how about you You start with your opening argument in defense of The Mandalorian? Okay. Why is the show good? It feels like the original Star Wars, Brian. It feels it feels original. There's practical, practical effects. effects. Yes. There's there's good wipes and transitions. The the dialogue has the same mix of kind of serial drama, you know, adventure comic mixed with a good sense of humor and there's there's jokes. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but it isn't Jar Jar Banks, right? It, it's a good balance. Every episode ends with a really nice cliffhanger that makes me want to watch the next episode. The overarching story is one I'm interested in, seeing how it plays out, but each individual episode is compelling. I don't know. I, that's that's why I like it. That's my argument. Is it? But I think the biggest thing is it feels like fucking Star Wars in a way that the last six movies have not really felt like Star Wars. There are three movies that felt like Star Wars <laughs> yeah. in my mind, yeah. and this feels like those. Okay. I agree and i like the things that you like here's my biggest problem with the show is that they chose to focus on a primary uh, the main character the protagonist wears a helmet the entire time <laughs> it's part of his religion and it's like you can't build any sort of human connection with this character without seeing facial expressions like I, it made me realize how important facial expressions are because in theory, this person, you can get what's going on, right? Like you can tell when they're frustrated or angry or upset, but then it just zooms in on a helmet and you can't see the eyes. It, it just feels like you're watching a wall go through some activities and I can't empathize with the character. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I, as much as I love all of the Star Wars-y things and maybe I'll end up watching it for that, I felt... Like, I just don't care about what happens to this main character because I can't understand what they're feeling or how they're navigating the problems that present themselves in each episode outside of just shooting things and punching things. I mean, that's a big part of it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's my counter argument to you. The story that we're following is, and, and the character that we're supposed to see him as is a wall. He's supposed to be a wall. And the whole, the whole point of the arc of this series, my guess, is that we're going to try to see this emotional arc of this wall, go from a wall to something that is not a wall, right? To, to a person who does have feelings and emotions and mercy and, you know, passion for other people other than himself, because the, the, the entire point of a Mandalorian is you kind of like look out for yourself. He's a bounty hunter. He looks out for himself, right? So it's it's good that he's a wall in the first couple episodes because that gives him room to grow. Sure, but if the helmet doesn't come off, then it's going to be really hard for me to take it seriously when like I can tell when they're trying to have a dramatic moment and it just zooms in on a metal helmet and it's like, all right, this is yeah, it's falling flat for you me. You can kind of see his nose through the little <laughs> windshield if when the, the lighting, lighting is, is exactly just right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So here uh, in subsequent episodes that you haven't seen cuz you stopped after episode 2, in the most recent episode 4, it is actually a plot point that he 
doesn't take his helmet off. And okay. it's, it's come into question of like, hey, you know, if you want to have some human interactions, maybe you should take that thing off. But it's against his religion. It's, this is the way. You don't take your helmet off. It's like a never nude thing. Like no, 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 just not around other people. You can take it off because this is what I thought too. I'm like, he must be like a, a zitty, greasy, a mess stinky under there. boy. <laughs> yeah, right. Like you ain't brush your teeth, buddy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, apparently he does take his helmet off. We actually see him take his helmet off, not to camera, but like we we see that he does take his helmet off, just not around people. That's the thing. You don't show your face. Okay. If we get past episode four or whatever they're on at the time of this recording and we eventually get to scenes where the helmet comes off and we get facial expression, then I'm in. Because it's... It, who's the actor? It's Pedro uh, Pascal. Uh, Pascal, yeah. yeah. My guess is we will see his face at the end of the first season. That okay. will be the reveal. That will be the that will be the thing that, that happens. Like, oh, shit, credits. That'd be awesome. At the end of the first season. Right. Then it may, I mean, like, that's pretty obvious, right? Or, like, doesn't seem... They they would they wouldn't waste that because that's kind of a major plot point now. They, I don't think they would waste that until the very end. <laughs> yeah, but they're also losing people like me who can't empathize with the character for the whole season. So are they? Are, are ratings going down? Oh, I don't know. I mean, they lost me, so I assume there are okay. others like me. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll I'll give it a spin just for the Star Wars universe because I do enjoy that. Yeah, man, that world of things. The practical prosthetics and everything are are, are nice to see. Yeah, they're fun. And the CG looks good. It's fucking like, it's like movie quality CG. It's not TV quality CG. Yeah, right, yeah. That's my cool thing. Very expensive show to make. Mandalorian. Cool. You're already watching it probably. So you're, you're right to watch it. Mine is going to be way nerdier than yours, if that's even possible. Isn't that the par for the course? Yeah. All right. Are you listening to this podcast and you have a personal website running Google Analytics? <laughs> Are you doing an ad? What's going <laughs> No, this is my cool thing. <laughs> Go for it. Oh, I thought you were actually confused. <laughs> no, right. it just sounded like it. Yeah, yeah. Do you have this problem that we can help solve? Just go to whatever.com slash design details. All right, here, let me back up. So I made a website a while ago called Security Checklist, which was uh, a list of resources to help improve your online privacy and security. And one of the things that I did on that which I got called out for immediately was I had Google Analytics on it. <laughs> yeah. And I basically use Google Analytics for, I, I probably utilize 1% of its features, which is loosely, I just want to get like a high level sense of what pages people are clicking on and then how many people are, is the site reaching? I don't care about event tracking and funnels and all this shit, especially mostly on side projects, right? Like on this website, I just want to know how many people saw it. How many people went to the about page? How many people ended up contributing on the the repo? You don't care where they came there from? That's useful as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's okay. like the one page of Google Analytics, right? It's like your audience overview. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, I got called out because Google Analytics obviously captures a ton of information about traffic. They can cross-reference that. And it's going into this machine called Google that some people are paranoid about, myself included. So anyways, I have been sort of in the back of my mind looking around for alternatives to Google Analytics. And there are many, but there's one that caught my eye recently and it's called Fathom. And Fathom is basically trying to solve analytics for people like me. I want some high level graphs. I want a little bit of granularity about like, yeah, I get, I want to see where people are coming to my site from and what pages are they viewing. And then how long are they viewing things? Like, are they bouncing immediately or or do they stick around and read? Mm -hmm. And so Fathom has that, but it's a privacy first analytics service. So what does that mean? They don't use cookies. Uh, They don't track anything about people who are visiting my sites. 
and they're because they're not doing any of this you don't have to display cookie notices right like you don't have to show that gdpr banner at the bottom of your site you can just drop it in and you're privacy compliant uh and their site is also super fast like because they don't have a billion features they just have a few things that they're tracking the performance is really good not only on the tracking side but also on the dashboard side so anyways i i spent last weekend just swapping over a personal site. So I got my personal site, the design detail site and spec FM and security checklist all moved over to fathom. Feels great. Just, you know, things that nobody will ever notice, but make me sleep easier at night. <laughs> yeah. So the URL is usefathom.com, but they have an affiliate program. We've never done this before, but here's the deal. If you go to our affiliate link, you can get a $10 off your first invoice. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can go to designdetails.fm slash fathom. Otherwise, just go to usefathom.com and, and check it out. So here's here's my take on this, Marshall. I guess it's partially a factor of me just like finally making money, right? Like when I was younger, I wanted everything to be free. I used to pirate movies, all you know, like <sighs> for shame. For Brian. shame. My first version of Photoshop was definitely not legit. But as I'm <laughs> expected. going through life and I see things that offer value and it costs five to ten dollars a month or whatever i'm like you know what i can do it like i can afford to support independent developers who are making a product that solve a very real need it makes me sleep better at night and i think i pay them 14 dollars a month it's like not a big deal so Mm -hmm. if other people are like me i think this is a good company that you could get behind it's two people working on it they have a podcast they're talking like kind of documenting their process of making it so i've started subscribing to that uh but I, I like this i'm doing this a lot for small app makers um just converting over to like support the independent version of feature x i like that cool so anyways that's my high horse <laughs> <laughs> welcome back down from it <sighs> welcome back down all right we're back thank <laughs> you for listening to design details this has been episode 325 we hope you enjoyed it uh if you did let us know what you thought we're on twitter at design details fm uh, of course, you can visit our site, designdetails.fm, and now there's no more Google Analytics, so your privacy is our priority. If you are enjoying the show, whether it's your first time listening or you've been around for a while, we'd love your support. If you go to patreon.com slash designdetails, we have a listener-supported model where you can pledge a dollar or more per month, and that gets you access to a private RSS feed with sponsor-free episodes and access to all bonus content. So that's patreon.com slash designdetails. Thank you for everyone who's supporting the show. If you need more podcasts for your ears, go to spec.fm. That's our podcast network for designers and developers just like you. And of course, thank you to Sarah and Drew, our producer and editor, who made this week possible or made this episode possible. They make us sound smarter than we actually are and cut out all the parts where we screw up. So thank you, Sarah and Drew, <laughs> for another one. Another one in the bag. In the can. In the can. And that's it. We'll catch you next week. Bye-bye. One strategy that comes to mind is, uh, let me think. (laughs) Thanks, Drew. (laughs) Uh, A great piece of wisdom I can share is, 
Uh, <laughs> give me a second here. Uh, Come back to me at five.